Okay, friends, the story begins. Okay, we're back. I, I feel like it's been a while, but were we here last week? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we were here last uh, week. Yeah, yeah, we were okay. here last week. Maybe I didn't have any Diet Coke then. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're on page 74. And as we journey through the sitter, through the prayer book, we are the song of the day. Right, every day there's a new song of the day, a new prayer that's recited that is connected to that day. It represents a message or meditation that is related to that day. And the song of the day for the fifth day of the week, Thursday, is a cut and paste excerpt from the book of Psalms, Tehillim, chapter 81. This is on page 74. And uh, let's let's read it. Let's read through the, the the chapter real quickly. Yeah, just to get an idea of what we're talking about here. You guys with me? Okay. Um, Aiden, I had I realized I would have sent you like a digital copy if you, if you don't have a hard copy with you. Um, if if you don't have a hard copy yep. though, you'll just you'll hear us. It'll be I'll be good. good. I I got one. Oh, score! Look yep. at that. Look at that. Okay, page seventy four for the choir master. Upon the musical instrument, Gitit by Asaf. Has anybody heard of Gitit? Apparently, it's a musical instrument. Um, it, you know why that's in brackets? It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It just says the choir master upon Gitit for Asaf. And the commentaries discuss what is this Gitit? Some say it's a location. Some say it's a musical instrument. They're following Rashi's interpretation, suggesting that it's a musical instrument. What does it say in there, John? Yeah, in this book it says in the footnote, a musical instrument crafted in goth or gath. Okay, interesting. Interesting. It it's this unknown word that commentaries start undigging. Sing joyously to God our strength. Sound the shofar to the God of Jacob. There's going to be a lot to unpack here, guys. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> uh, raise your voice in song and sound the drum. The pleasant harp and the lyre. What's a lyre? That's like a mini harp, right? Okay. Blow the shofar on the new moon on the designated day of our holy day, referring to Rosh Hashanah, for it is a decree for Israel, a ruling of the God of Jacob. He ordained it as a precept for Joseph when he went forth over the land of Egypt. I heard a language which I did not know. I had taken his shoulder from the burden. His hands were removed from the cauldron. Cauldron. In distress, you called and I delivered you. You called in secret and I answered you with, with thunderous wonders. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear my people, and I will admonish you, Israel, if you would only listen to me. You shall have no alien God within you. You shall bow down. Hold on. Nor shall you bow down, sorry, excuse my English, nor shall you bow down to a foreign deity. I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, state all your desires, and I shall grant them. But my people did not heed my voice. Israel did not want to listen to me. So I went, so I sent them away from the for the willingness, their heart for following their evil design. If only my people would listen to me, if Israel would only walk in my ways, then I would speedily subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their oppressors. Those who hate the Lord would shrivel before him, and the time of their retribution shall be forever. I would feed him, Israel, with the finest of wheat 
and sate you with honey from the rock. Okay, we got to unpack this a little bit. This is a prayer, a psalm from the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, um, composed by Asaf. Asaf was one of the Levites, and he was one of the singers. The Levites had a singing position. They would sing in the Beit HaMikdash. They would sing in the temple. And he used to sing this song. And you can guess what day he would sing the song in the Beit HaMikdash. Him and his choir. Thursdays, right? It's connected to Thursday. Um, it's also connected to Rosh Hashanah, right? And the Talmud actually says that uh, we don't practice this tradition now for whatever reason. But the Talmud does say that there was a practice of reciting this on Rosh Hashanah as well. The song of the day. In certain communities, you know how we have a song of the day for every day of the week? In certain communities, there was a special song of the day, a special psalm, not only for the day of the week, but for the holiday. A special Hanukkah one, a special Rosh Hashanah one, a special uh, Sukkot one, Pesach one. That did not make its way into our tradition. You will likely see that in other sitters. Um, not 100% sure. But what is the connection to Thursday? So a big theme, there's a lot going on in this psalm, but a big part of this is singing and the Talmud says and this may sound a little bit abstract um, bear with me <laughs> the Talmud says what was created on the fifth day of creation Thursdays anybody remember is it uh, the animals I was say land animals okay, not the animals not sp okay, animals, but we got to be a little bit more specific because most animals were created the sixth day. Mm. The birds and the fish. I said that. Who said that? I said sea animals and, and birds. You did? Okay, I just yeah. heard animals. I apologize. Well, I, had, I said animals at first, but then I. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, because animals were the sixth day. But sea creatures, sea animals, and sky animals, birds and fish were created on that day. And apparently, birds and fish are associated with singing to God, which is the theme of this chapter. Birds and fish. Okay, birds I get because of the chirping. The fish. What does a fish sound like? What well, kind of voice okay. so I think of whales and how they how they you know make sounds beneath the ocean. Almost sounds like song. Okay, interesting. Interesting. I didn't think of that. I okay, but just just to to push back on that. Whales are are they are they really sea creatures? I, I they're, they're, mammals. They're, they're mammals. They are mammals. They're mammals. Yeah. Are they so it's an interesting question, by the way. It's a separate question. Were whales created on the fifth day, the day sea creatures were created, or were they created on the sixth day, the animals were created? I have no idea, but it's an interesting question. I think dolphins are mammals too, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking so. dolphins make sounds that could be interpreted as a song. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So yeah, we would have to know when those were created. I don't know. I don't know if it's sourced anywhere. They're sea mammals. They're what? Sea mammals. Sea mammals, yeah. There you go. <laughs> sea um, but, the, but there's two ways to explain this. Commentaries explain this in two ways. One way to look at this is appreciating the sea creatures and the vastness that they occupy. Appreciating the sky creatures and the vastness that they occupy leads us to appreciate the creator of that vastness. And that is one way of developing love and passion for God. 
Maimonides discusses this in his compendium. How can you love a God you don't see? I mean, we know this from the Tanya as well, right? You have the soul. But Maimonides takes a bit of a different route. How can you appreciate a God you don't see? By appreciating what he does. Which is pretty much the whole first section of the prayer service, the verses of praise, the Pesuke de Zimra. Appreciating the world he created, you can get a glimpse of how incredible he is. Right? Theoretically, a scientist should have more faith than a non-scientist. They see so much. Right? You can you can take a microscope, an electron microscope, and, and dig into like a leaf or just anything. And there's just like this infinite world of depth. And appreciating the creator of that vastness leads to appreciating that creator. Leads to love. Leads to singing to God. And the theme of this chapter is singing out to God. That's one approach. There's a second approach. There is a book, an ancient book, thousands of years old, called Perak Shira. By raise of hands, who's heard of Perak Shira? Perak Shira. What? I've heard of Shira. Shira, right? Shira I, means singing. I've, I've heard of Perak. Right. You've heard of Perak, right? Perak means chapter, the chapter right. of singing. Perak Shira is a book authored. We, we actually don't know who authored it. There's different opinions uh, who authored the book. It's an unknown. Uh, it's sourced in the Talmud. The Talmud references it, which means it's older than the Talmud because the Talmud is quoting it. Some have the opinion that King David wrote it. Um, some reject that, and and but it's it's unknown. It's unknown for sure who wrote the book. But Perak Shira is a book that goes through each of uh, each of creation and describes how that element of creation praises God, based on various biblical verses. Just one question: This this is not Song of Songs, is it? No, no, this is but, different. But I mean, King David uh, authored that, right? So what? Can, uh, which one? Um, what, so, so you're saying you, uh, it's believed he may have authored the the Perikshir, uh Correct, correct. Okay. Yeah. So, so Song of Songs is different, but Song of Songs is by King Solomon, and Song of Songs is his description, his analogy of of a love poem between the Jewish people and God, a love story between the Jewish people and God. Perikshira goes through each of creation, the birds. The dogs, the mountains, the sun, the moon. How each part of creation praises God. And 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 when, when you read this book, you, you get an appreciation of how everything praises God. Everybody praises God. Everybody appreciates God. And how much more so as a human being who has more responsibility than the rest of creation should have this ability to praise God and have this need to praise God. So some say that this is what the um, verse is actually referring to. Look at the birds. Look at the fish. Look at creation at large. They're praising God. In this chapter of Psalms that we've read, um, there are three main themes. I mean, there's several things going on here. There's... But the first thing is 
singing to God, but specifically through the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. So there's the Rosh Hashanah theme. And again, many would actually read this psalm as part of the Rosh Hashanah service. There was a second theme here. We kind of glossed over it. Where it says, uh, Joseph being removed from uh, being freed. Where does it say this? Okay, do you see it? He ordained it as a precept for Joseph when he went forth over the land of Egypt. Commentaries say this is referring to Joseph being freed from the pit. How did Joseph get freed? Not from the pit, from the, from being imprisoned in Egypt. Remember Joseph was imprisoned in Egypt? Because he was framed for a crime he didn't do. He was framed for messing with his employer's wife when he didn't actually do anything. She uh, set him up. He ended up in prison for decades. And finally, Pharaoh has a dream. A disturbing dream. And he needs somebody to interpret it. And it's said that Joseph was the interpreter of dreams. And they pulled him out of the dungeon to interpret this dream. Well, what day was that? Thursday. The Talmud says, it was Thursday, right? The Talmud <laughs> says that was on Rosh Hashanah. Joseph's liberation was Rosh Hashanah. Pharaoh's dream was Rosh Hashanah. Which makes sense, by the way, because Rosh Hashanah is... Uh, the day that our fate is being decided, it's judgment day, and the fate of humanity was being decided. There was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. But it's also a day of liberation. Rosh Hashanah is a day of liberation. Okay, what else did this chapter talk about? If you scroll a few more lines down, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The exodus from Egypt. The Talmud says, when was the exodus from Egypt? Rosh Hashanah. Huh? How was the exodus from Egypt on Rosh Hashanah? What's going on here? Yeah, you were more better associated that with uh, Passover. Passover, right? The exodus from Egypt was the 15th of Nisan, which is Passover. Rosh Hashanah is the first of Tishrei, six months prior. Or, or whatever, nine months prior, whatever it is. Many months prior. But so Nisan is the first month. And Nisan is the first month, right? So there's a lot going on here. The Talmud says the actual, the, the exodus from the, the geographical exodus from Egypt was Passover. It was the 15th of Nisan. But when did they cease to work as slaves? That happened to have been on Rosh Hashanah. Well, I mean, I, I uh, ceased to work physically or mentally? Physically. The physical labor. Oh, okay. uh, well, that, that's a good question. Were they mentally free yet at this point? Right. Because, I mean, they, they many times they said, take us back, right? So they weren't really mentally free. Uh, you want, One can argue that they were not mentally free. One can argue that they could have been mentally free. Theoretically. Yeah. Right. Um. From the text, it would appear that they were not mentally free. They kept wanting to go back. They had that slave mentality. I mean, if you look in the in the text, when they're cornered by the sea, and the sea splits for them, uh, how many Jews are there at this point in history? There were about 3 million, hmm. give or take. You know how we know that? We know there were 600,000 between the ages of 20 to 60 males. 600 males between the ages of 20 to 60. That's what the Torah says. So anybody who's a female 
or male under 20 or over 60, plus children. So give or take about 3 million Jews. And the Torah tells us they're cornered by 600 of Pharaoh's chariots. That's not many. That's not very many. You could charge them with your bare hands with that many people. 3 million compared to 600. But with the slave mentality, they were intimidated. And perhaps Pharaoh even knew that they had the slave mentality. He, he was willing to chase after them with 600 chariots. It's not that many. Um, but in essence, freedom to, to, to some extent did begin. We had the potential to be free. Rosh Hashanah. And what we see here are two things. Number one, freedom is not just about uh, geography, about where you are. Freedom is about who you are. Because you could be out of Egypt and still have the slave mentality. And be, you know, you could be part of three million people and be afraid of 600 chariots. You could be in Egypt and feel free, like the tribe of Levi. Right? They stopped working. They could have been free. They knew they had God on their side. They saw the the the, the plagues. They they had Moses with them. They could have believed. They could have been free. They weren't working. So freedom is not just about where we are. It's very much about who we are. We, we are not just free because we don't happen to be imprisoned. Imprisoned. Is that even a word? Um, imprisoned. Imprisoned. That's great. That's that's one for the books, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you something fascinating. Um, in the Siddur, we refer to Passover as Zman Chirutenu, the time of our freedom. When was that prayer authored? I mean, most of the texts of the Siddur compiled during exile, after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, which means during exile we're experiencing freedom, because freedom is not just about where you are. Geog uh, geographically, but it's very much about who we are. So I'll tell you a story. There were two brothers. They were both colleagues, just to give historical context. They were both colleagues of Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya. So this goes about back about 250 years ago. One brother was named Rabbi Elimelech of Luzhinsk. One brother was Rabbi Zush of Anapoli. And they were both in living in Tsarist Russia, where being Judaism, being Judaism, I don't know what's with me tonight. <laughs> you could offer a new dictionary. I could, I'm going to have to. I, I think uh, this can's not big enough. That's the problem. Okay. No, it's not Coke Zero. That Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I can't do Coke Zero anymore. I They changed it. No, didn't they change it like the past two years? It's. I don't know. I, I had to stop drinking. Oh, yeah, you've been off that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, being Jewish and practicing Judaism openly was illegal in Tsarist Russia. Um, you, you go to these communist countries and you got to be careful. You know, we were in Canada recently. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's below the belt, I know. Okay, um, but but it's it's illegal. They were thrown into prison for sharing and practicing Judaism. 
And they're in this prison cell. And in the prison cell is a chamber pot to collect waste. There's no actual plumbing system, just that chamber pot. They wake up in the morning, and one of the brothers says, time to pray. And he's about to put on his tefillin. I don't even know if he was had access to tefillin, but whatever. He was about to start praying. And then they realize there's a chamber pot in the room. They can't pray. It's prohibited to pray in the presence of the contents of a chamber pot or even a chamber pot that has no contents in it. But if that's what it's used for, you can't pray in a bathroom. It's prohibited. And he starts crying. Because all he wanted to do is connect to God and share that with the world. And he gets in prison because of it. And he can't even have the liberty of praying in the prison cell. He can't pray to God. The other brother says to him, I think it was Rebeli Melech, says to Rebzusha, Rebzusha, the same God who wants you to pray right now wants you to not pray because there's a chamber pot here. So if you would have rejoiced because you had the opportunity to pray, now you have to rejoice because you have the opportunity to not pray. Because you're keeping God's law, not praying in the presence of a chamber pot. And they start dancing around a chamber pot, around the toilet. And happiness is a bad thing in, in these, in these uh, that, that's like a crime, right? Because that's part of Judaism. So the, um, the prison warden comes in, sees him dancing around the chamber pot, and he takes it away. And now they can pray. <laughs> they continue uh, dancing. I, I heard a story, but you kind of left out part of the ending. He, sa he says, he comes, he says, what, what's going on? And then somebody says, well, they, 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 there's something about that chamber pot that's making them want to dance. And then he says, okay, well, we're taking that away. All right, time, time to get rid of it, right? Um, what were they experiencing when they're dancing? Joy. Freedom. freedom. Joy and freedom. It was not geographical freedom. It's not a place they wanted to be. But it was soul freedom. You have a similar story with the famed, uh, there was a famous character in the Chabad world named Mendel Futterfass. Mendel Futterfass was in a similar predicament, um, but in more recent times, just to give historical context, he passed away in like 1995, I think. He was a a, a big teacher in, 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 in the yeshiva, in the Chabad yeshiva. But prior to that, he lived in communist Russia and he was put in Siberia for sharing the joy of Judaism, he was locked up in Siberia for 10 years away from his family. And, you you know, people went crazy. Um, he, he actually had access to a pair of tefillin, but wasn't able to put them on because it was so cold that the straps cracked. Somebody asked Reb Zusha, not Reb Zusha, Reb Mendel, how do you keep your sanity here? How do you not go crazy? We're all going nuts. And you're doing your thing. He says, prior to my imprisonment, I used to wake up in the morning. I'd pray. I'd study Torah. I'd pray some more. I. He says, I'm in prison right now. And my schedule hasn't changed much. <laughs> he was free. He was free, right? 
it's not the type of freedom we're looking for. Nobody would ever ask for that type of freedom. But he was not geographically free. He was, on a soul level, very much free. Is, is he the one that held a matzah for a year so that he would have matzah for Pesach? For the next year, probably, yeah. There's that story about him. There's a lot of stories about him, about his, his experiences in Siberia. There's a, a book, a great book that just came out about him. And it's like short stories, like one page of just his life experiences. It's it's incredible. He tells a story of, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think this is a great story. He was a young kid and he was raised by his grandparents. His father, his grandfather was a cobbler, a shoe cobbler. And as a kid, he asked his grandfather, you're repairing all these shoes. I notice you repair shoes. Why don't you ever have to repair feet? He was a kid. His father said, the shoes are dead. It's just leather. So they wear out. Feet have life, so they don't wear out. They don't need to be repaired. So what Mendel said many, many years later, the message kind of hit him. That when you're dead, you know, you got to get repaired. But if you have life, you, you last forever. If you have vitality and joy, you, you keep on going. You keep on going. Okay, but this was this is lesson number one. In Egypt, they were free, or at least had the potential to be free. They could have left that slave mentality because slavery had stopped. Even though they were geographically in Egypt, God says, but look at the text, I'm the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And this is referring to on Rosh Hashanah. That's what the commentaries say. God says, I brought you from the land of Egypt, even though you are still geographically in the land of Egypt. Because you have the ability to experience freedom, even if that is not the geographical reality. That could still be your internal reality. Number two. Again, this exodus of Egypt is taking place. The first step of exodus, which is stopping the slavery, is taking place on Rosh Hashanah. Which tells us a lot about what Rosh Hashanah is. Freedom. That's wild. To me, that's a wild statement. Because Rosh Hashanah is very different than just New Year's. <laughs> my, my personal pet peeve. This is my own thing. And... Forgive me if this is offensive to anybody listening to this or anybody listening to the recording after the live thing. It's my own personal thing. When people say Happy New Year on Rosh Hashanah, it drives me bonkers. And I don't judge anybody for saying that. I don't judge anybody for not understanding the full context of Rosh Hashanah. But it's not New Year. It is happens to be a new year, but it's much more than that. Rosh Hashanah is, it's not just a, New Year's is January 1st. And what makes New Year special January 1st is nothing. A bunch of people decided that this is going to be the new calendar year. We're going to call it 2024 instead of 2023. It's arbitrary. Rosh Hashanah is not new. It's not just Happy New Year, right? It, it's a, it's much more than that. It's, it really is a new segment in time. It really is the beginning of creation. It's the day man was created. It's the day that man has responsibility to this world. It's the day that we coronate God as king. Yeah. Question, comment. Uh, so when you greet somebody, Lishanatova, I mean, 
again, translations are not to be trusted, but is there something more in, pa packed into the Shana Tova that even my Chabad Rebbe will, will say this to me? I mean, is there something more to that? It, I mean, Shana Tova means a, a good year, right? Shana Tova Maduka, a good year. We're, we're wishing each other a that the year should be good because our fate is being decided. Um, I, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with saying New Year, Happy New Year. I'm just saying in my own Meshigas, <laughs> the the connotation is is often feels like it's just like a it's just like Jewish New Year, you know? Yeah. When when it's much more than that. There's there's much more depth to it. I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a a Hasidic rabbi, I forgot his name. He used to celebrate January 1st, New Year's, which was uncommon in Hasidic circles. You know, we usually stick to the Jewish calendar. So they said, Rabbi, why are you celebrating this day? He says, God sees how the nations of the world are partying hard on New Year's. And then he sees how we celebrate our New Year, how we mark our New Year. It, it's more of a, a solemn day. We're sounding the shofar and doing, you know, introspection. And it, it kind of puts things into context. <laughs> puts things into context. Having said that, Rosh Hashanah is a very serious day. Uh, people don't know this, but Yom Kippur is a joyous day. Rosh Hashanah is a very serious day. Rosh Hashanah is the day that we're coronating God. Rosh Hashanah is the day that God is trusting us with independence. That's what it means he wants to be our king on Rosh Hashanah. Right? He's trusting us with independence. He's, he's I have a question. Yeah. So are we not supposed to live every day with joy? And we're not supposed to. No, no, we are for sure. So then, what's wrong with being joyful that we are being trusted and being joyful? No, no, hundred percent. Wishing others and being like so, extending the joy to it, other it, people. It, it absolutely should be with joy. Why? Because, because, because you kill a dream. <laughs> no, no, dream no, no. It absolutely have should be with year. joy. It absolutely should be with joy, but there is a intensity to the day still but with intensity you can still experience joy and you can still be not inwardly but outwardly um ha wishing everybody else to also have the beautiful experience of a new year and, and we should we should i, I uh, to, to me it was just the, the connotation of happy new year as opposed to shana tova in my own head just has like this this um mundane connotation to it and, and that's only from the new year that no not not the if you wish somebody happy new year on rosh hashanah and not shana tova i mean it's like is it or is it only for the 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 secular new year well well that it again i'm just saying my own personal shtick i'm not saying it's it's no, I, I just i just i just feel that that we at all times should be be grateful for a new year a hundred percent a hundred percent the, the so, Rabbi Josh, you uh, picture party hats and champagne, and and, and lampshades. That and that's lamp. what comes to my mind when I hear Happy New Year. That's what I'm saying. It, Whereas I mean, when you hear Shana Tova, it, it's a different type of joy. So you're saying specifically the English phrase, not just not, the phrase, not not the yeah, just the not, phrase not the in my mind. Again, it's only in my head. I'm not saying this is the reality. It's, it's the connotation. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's like what how it's said with the purpose behind it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but but 100%, Rosh Hashanah is a very serious day. It's a very intense day. It does need to be lived out with joy. 
It 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 does. But Rosh Hashanah is a big responsibility. Well, um, what what you said about you said Yom Kippur, like they have it reversed that Yom Kippur should be the the happy days. So maybe people got confused because isn't Yom Kippur considered the most the holiest day of the year? It it yeah, it's it's interesting. It's the holiest day of the year, it's the most joyous day of the year. So um the so body doesn't are, disturb us, we're just soul focused. So probably people confuse holy with serious. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. So Rosh Hashanah is a little bit more serious than, than Yom Kippur. It's, it is a judgment day, and God is judging. Are we able to handle the independence? Um, it, it, it is an intense day, and we coordinate God. We blow the shofar, we sound the shofar, and there is a little bit of... Let me put it this way. No, normally, you know, when a president or prime minister or whatever it is walks off the plane, you have an entire orchestra. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, for God, we have a shofar, which doesn't sound as nice as an orchestra. Um, but there is a certain depth that that shofar has. And that depth is going to stir emotion. It is going to touch the heart. It is going to pierce the soul. That depth is real and that depth is there. That depth is liberating. The depth of Rosh Hashanah is liberating. And I think that's the lesson of this chapter as well. The day that Joseph was freed from being in prison was Rosh Hashanah. The day that the Jews ceased to be slaves, at least behaviorally, in Egypt, prior to the geographical exodus, it was Rosh Hashanah. Because the theme of Rosh Hashanah, the theme of connecting to the soul in that very deep way, which comes with an incredible amount of responsibility, and again, it is a joyous day, but it is a very serious day, and it comes with an incredible amount of responsibility, that's freedom. Freedom isn't just about what am I running away from, but what are my responsibilities as a human being? which is what Rosh Hashanah is all about. That's freedom. And I believe that is the theme of this chapter. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.